You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. All right, today I am joined by the Ready to Learn and Play team. I'm speaking with Amanda and Aaron, the developers of a four-phase framework that can be used as a tool to guide intervention planning. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Matt, for having us. And we also want to thank AOTA for featuring us on this episode. Uh, So the members of the Ready to Learn and Play team present today are myself, Amanda Nuchak, and Erin O'Hara. And then we have a third partner, Dr. Janice Leinfuss, um, who couldn't be with us today. But we are all uh, practicing occupational therapists in the pediatric area of practice. Uh, We each have over 20 years of experience. And we also are avid believers in, you know, the idea of continued education and professional growth. So, you know, one of us is an adjunct professor. One of us is an instructor for the Star Institute. We've presented at uh, state, national, and international uh, conferences. So we feel like we brought a really high level of uh, practitioner experience and expertise to this framework. Absolutely. Sounds like a, a real all-star team for sure with the Ready to Learn to Play framework. And thank you for agreeing to share your expertise and experience of the team uh, with us today. Could you go ahead and introduce us to the Ready to Learn to Play framework? Really, what is it and what motivated you all to collaborate and develop it? So the Ready to Learn and Play um, framework is a sensory regulation framework that teaches the why behind sensory regulation. Um, Our TLP simplifies neuroscience to be meaningful and purposeful for individuals with neurodivergences and their caregivers and, of course, educators to promote regulation using sensory strategies and supports. Um, We designed to coach and promote regulation um, we wanted to support individuals with neurodiverse diversities and others to really recognize that individualized sensory clues and why they may be exhibited and how to best support using context appropriate strategies. So this in turn may promote that optimal level of arousal and thereby supporting their readiness for learning. So as skilled professionals, we know that OTs recognize that individualized strategies work best and through ready to learn and play, we have translated this information to be accessible to individuals without our professional neuroscience background. So the ready to learn and play concept of sensory regulation uses principles from occupational therapy theory, behavioral psychology research, and cognitive learning theories. So when you asked us about what motivated us to really develop this program, we unlocked the need for this framework during a group treatment session with students who had been receiving sensory-based intervention for years. We asked the students who had been receiving that therapy Um, why they wanted to swing, and they kind of looked back at us with blank stares. So we realized at that point that they had no ownership of that treatment they were receiving because that was exactly it. They were just receiving therapy, but not really helping create it or understanding the whys behind what they were doing. Ready to Learn and Play has made that intervention meaningful for individuals with neurodiversity and their caregivers, and their independence in achieving and maintaining regulation has soared. And that really gave their ability to employ a variety of strategies and supports in the absence of their OT. And that has really been significant. Well, thank you so much. I I love that description of of this program um, and the emphasis on encouraging ownership 
of one's health and well-being and independence uh, with the, the clients that it's used with. What population and, and, and what kind of settings is, is this framework intended to be used with? So the Ready to Learn and Play framework um, is designed to support individuals with sensory regulation challenges that impact their occupational performance across ages, across stages of development, um, with the goal of helping the neurodiverse individuals learn how to best meet their own sensory needs. What, what really sets Ready to Learn and Play apart is that it was specifically designed for individuals who are unable to access or find meaning in already established regulation programs based on, again, those individual needs of that person. Uh, so the, the framework is really unique in that it considers processing strengths of those specific individuals and uses this hands-on participative approach. So our pilot research uh, was completed with students on the autism spectrum in an academic setting. Those students ranged in age from three to 21, but other expansion studies have been completed outside of the autism spectrum. We also have found practical application for the framework in community-based work setting. So it really kind of ranges from young to old across, again, like we were saying, those ages and stages. I love that. I love a framework that is adaptable or it can be used in many different settings as, as opposed to just in one specific population or one specific setting that, that the research has been carried out in. Um, love an applicable model, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> what additional skills or knowledge have, have helped you and, and the team to really flesh out this framework and turn it into something that can be included into kind of a, a wide variety of setting for pediatric practitioners? You know, COVID-19 pandemic really impacted occupational therapy practice for all of us, clients and families included. And as practicing clinicians, we were challenged to find innovative ways to deliver those services in ways that were meaningful and impactful to our clients and their families. And through this process, it became clear that OTs really need to have a way to support individuals with neurodiversity in regulating their sensory needs across contexts without fancy equipment and to be able to express this to their caregivers in ways that were meaningful to everyone involved. So the Ready to Learn and Play team recognized this need for this information to be able to be accessible via online platforms, and we were able to transpose the entire framework to be used virtually, which was huge at that time and continues to be with teletherapy expansions. It's included that we have developed slide decks for learning and teaching of the individual of the concepts from Ready to Learn and Play, but also we have activities that reinforce learning. We have boom decks, we have done additional visual aids, and really tr um, designed training agendas so that it's easily used by clinicians in practice. I love that. I love that. Accessibility is so important. Thank you for sharing kind of all these steps that you've taken to, to make this program more accessible um, and, and easier to access. That's uh, uh, one of our emphases on this show is, is trying to find new ways to make research more accessible for the OT practitioner. And in what ways have you incorporated research and evidence into the Ready to Learn and Play framework? So our colleague Janice Linefis uh, had completed a literature review as part of her doctoral program while researching the uh, Ready to Learn and Play framework, which really served 
as guiding principles in the development of the framework. So four themes really emerged once we once she had done that literature review. One being that sensory processing challenges often impact occupational performance. Another being that behaviors related to sensory processing are an attempt at maintaining this homeostatic arousal level. And these behaviors include self-stimulatory behavior, sensory seeking, sensory avoidant, and repetitive behaviors. Similarly, sensory-based interventions help to facilitate that occupational performance. And then finally, we've discovered in the research that collaboration and coaching with caregivers is often effective in facilitating that improvement in the occupational performance. You mentioned kind of those uh, pillars or background research that that loaded into the ready to learn and play framework. What what other theories or, or models kind of underpin your work with pediatrics and on this framework? Ready to learn and play framework is based on theories from cognitive science, behavioral psychology, neuroeducation, and of course, a different occupational therapy models of practice, including uh, Winnie Dunn's model of sensory processing. Um, finding effective an effective way to bridge this gap in knowledge of sensory processing patterns, as described by Winnie Dunn's model, from occupational therapists to individuals with neurodiversity and their caregivers would be beneficial for improving participation in activities, right? And we've we've determined that, and that it often helps assign meaning to these activities in their daily lives. So the Ready to Learn and Play framework guides coaching and training so the neurodiverse individual, as well as their educators and caregivers, can learn how to recognize and better understand those sensory clues is what we call them, really, that sensory, that self-simulation, the sensory seeking or sensory avoidant. And we use those clues to kind of guide our selection of those multi-sensory based interventions. Improved sensory regulation for an individual can really empower them in the application of these concepts from Winnie Dunn. So it, it's it's really influenced the participation of the individuals who use the framework to engage in their daily occupations. Absolutely. It sounds like obviously a, a sensory-based framework, but also with a, a cognitive emphasis in, in making or empowering the client to, to take more control um, in using and identifying the sensory-based strategies to, to help themselves. I'm really interested to learn more about this framework and this model. Can you go ahead and give us an introduction to the framework specifically? What are things that a practitioner should know before they start using it? Of course, Matt. So to start, after um, completing that comprehensive review of the literature, we identified a two-fold gap in the research. Number one, was that there is a need for evidence-based interventions for individuals with neurodiversity, including those with ASD, in order to maximize their occupational performance. And number two, there is a need for caregivers and educators to possess skills to support those individuals with sensory processing differences in their ability to participate in daily occupations, including those of a student and a peer. So the Ready to Learn and Play framework was developed to bridge this gap. Our framework 
is divided into four phases, and we have rubrics for mastery of phases one through three. The framework uses visual aids throughout the program, including pictures to facilitate participation and engagement of varied learners. The instructional design of the framework includes hands-on activities, stories specifically written to facilitate self-awareness and self-management for individuals with sensor regulation challenges, and includes games, puzzles, and quizzes to support those individuals through in-person and teletherapy delivery and consultative models. I, I have a follow-up question for you there. You mentioned each each phase of your of your framework has a rubric for mastery. What is a rubric for mastery? That uh, phrase really sticks out to me. It sounds like something that would be really helpful for practitioners or people looking to apply this framework. Sure. Um, so rubric for mastery is exactly kind of what it says, and that is just a concrete level of showing process or progress. So obviously as clinicians who are working with individuals on our caseloads, we need to be able to have concrete evidence showing that what we are doing is making progress and they are progressing on their goal areas. These rubrics for mastery are right there and already kind of outlined for the clinician to follow. So that way when they are, you know, meeting the rubrics for mastery of phase one, they know right there that then that's a clue that they can start phase two because all of our phases build upon the previous phase. So in order to start phase two, you need to have full mastery of the concepts presented in phase one. And oftentimes sensory-based intervention is not as easy to collect data on and isn't as evidence-based, even though we know it's working, right? We it's, it's really hard to kind of collect data on those more qualitative pieces of information. So this is a nice way having those rubrics of, again, passing on this very concrete way of determining that evidence within this framework. Absolutely. I I love that. I think that's really the highest level of evidence-based practice is providing resources, not only showing like the effectiveness of an intervention or how it's grounded in research and backed by evidence, but providing resources for clinicians and practitioners to be able to implement the intervention effectively. Um, And having that guide, I think, can make a huge difference. Really happy to hear that it's included here. And I want to dive into details and ask you about each of the four phases of the framework. Uh, But before that, I want to make sure I have my timeline correct. And I think we should talk about the role that screening and assessment play in the framework. So can you talk to us about that? How does screening and assessment play into the use and and application of this framework? Of course. So in order to achieve maximal benefits from this framework, it's really important for the clinician to be skillful in identifying when occupational performance is impacted by sensory regulation challenges. And there are many checklists and assessments that can aid the therapist in this process. But of course, um, the clinical observations and clinical reasoning are also valuable tools in that screening and assessment process. Thank you for that uh, description of of screening and assessment. Can we dive now into those four phases? Let's go through each one. And I want to ask what the phase is, what its goals are, um, and what it looks like when implemented in the practice. Uh, Let's begin with phase one. Can you introduce us to this first phase? Sure. So phase one is what we consider sensory experience. The design component goes back to ready to learn and plays um, base in neuroscience, specifically on how the brain obtains and retains knowledge. 
So in the process of learning, categorization is an organizational memory strategy noted in educational research that leads to improved recall. Uh, so throughout this phase, individuals are exposed to various sensory strategies or techniques that impact each sensory system. Um, so the participant learns that there are many different ways and many ways to intensify or suppress sensory stimulation that they receive from their environment. This is a high level skill to, to really help a client develop to um, you know, recognize how their actions or these different sensory interventions are affecting their, their regulation and, you know, the neuroscience going on within their brain. What kind of language are you using when you're educating children, caregivers and teachers in what sensory processing is and, and what these strategies are and how they can learn for themselves to know which strategies to incorporate at what points in time? Matt, we agree with you in the fact that, and we recognized this when we were developing it, that neuroscience is a very complex topic. Ready to Learn and Play really removes all of that professional OT jargon um, that we often use with practitioners so that it can translate to other individuals, caregivers, educators. Um, so this facilitates the understanding and, and that promotion of effective coaching and that relationship that, that we have with coaching with this framework. Um, so throughout the framework, each sensory system is referenced very simply and when appropriate to maybe the body part that it is most commonly associated with. So for example, the word eyes is used for the visual system um, to promote that connection to body awareness and to be accessible and meaningful to all learners. So each phase uses this simple cadenced sentence, sentences that really build upon one another to scaffold this knowledge of sensory regulation concepts paired with visual aids to support that learning. Again, an example of this would be that in the language that is heard in phase one includes statements such as, you are swinging, a swing makes your body move. So then this sentence is expanded upon in phase two, where the phrase might sound like this, you are rocking, you are giving me a clue that you may need to move, a swing can make your body move. So that you can you can see as as we go along through the phases, we're using a lot of the same verbiage and language to kind of drive home uh, um, a lot of this information. And then finally, in phase three, that simple language is used to extended contexts and extended individuals. So we're helping to kind of reinforce that learning for the participant, as well as to make that sensory processing concept relatable and meaningful to those educators and caregivers that that individual interacts with. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for painting that picture of, of kind of these first three phases and, and that progression and how it builds. Um, I really love how it's made practical and, and reasonable for uh, the client in, in simplifying uh, as much as it can be. As you progress to that, that second phase, sensory choices, can you talk to us about understanding the difference between using sensory input to facilitate regulation 
and just participating in sensory activity? Of course. So Matt, our framework aligns with AOTA's Choosing Wisely campaign, which states that SI intervention must be client-specific to target individualized sensory dysfunction and promotes the education of therapeutic team members and caregivers not to implement those generic sensory strategies that are kind of a one-size-fits-all approach. So for example, an example of participating in sensory activities would be, say, an art project of finger painting. So clearly that finger painting activity is sensory rich as it provides each um, student or child with a ton of tactile information. This activity may or may not be supportive of regulation for that participant based on their sensory profiles. For that individual who is under responsive to tactile information, then likely this tax would be supportive of regulation. But for the individual who is over responsive to tactile information, this activity likely would not be regulating and would further dysregulate that individual when presented without additional supports or guidance from a therapist. So it's recommended that consultation occur with an OT with advanced training in sensory processing um, be considered when using any sort of sensory input to facilitate regulation. Um, and that is often described as that calm yet alert, just right level of arousal. The Ready to Learn and Play framework helps translate this information from the OT to the neurodiverse individual and their caregivers in a variety of ways. So for example, in phase two, understanding of how to customize own, your own sensory supports to facilitate regulation is highlighted. And this is accomplished through the introduction of scattered actions and how to interpret these as sensory clues. So in our framework, we use the term scattered actions to describe those sensory seeking, sensory avoidant, repetitive or self-stimulatory behaviors that an individual may exhibit in their attempt for their own self-regulation. And it's really important to note that scattered actions are not viewed as negative or maladaptive, but really just viewed as a clue for the participant, the OT, the educator, whichever support system that individual is working with on how they need and what kind of sensory supports they may need in that given moment. It's is further individualized in this phase by using Ready to Learn and Play's functional learning glide. Um, we use it as a flag, F-L-A-G is the acronym for that. Um, and basically picture a three column flag. And the first column represents the scattered action. The second column identifies the sensory category connected to that scattered action. And the third is an opportunity for that individual to recall a sensory strategy, again, activity or technique that was previously learned in phase one that fits into that category. And this is how we are ultimately addressing that underlying regulation need. This visual aid is actually one of the most powerful things that we have designed because it creates a type of outline sensory regulation formula, which eliminates the participating in sensory activity, quote, versus the participating in sensory tasks that are regulating for arousal level. I just imagine a, a light bulb moment, both for practitioners and for clients in seeing this visual aid and working through it. Um, and realizing how those three pillars on the flag intersect. Can you give us an example of using that visual aid and, and using this phase two? Uh, kind of what behaviors or, or responses uh, would a clinician be looking for um, that show regulation with a sensory input? And how would they really help a client to, to see the same thing and begin to recognize that themselves? So it's actually um, really powerful. Like you said, um, we have seen a ton of you know, lights on aha moments with our students. And again, during shutdown in particular with their families and caregivers in the home environment, 
using this flag um, functional learning assessment guide as a concept. Again, this formula really takes the the abstract concept of sensory regulation and makes it kind of concrete and more meaningful. And it just kind of makes it more simplified for the individual who is having some sensory processing differences and needing the support of that caregiver who may or may not understand what sensory clues are or what that individual is trying to convey as far as what their sensory needs are at that moment. So again, using this flag has been an eye-opener for us in our treatment and in the development of the Ready to Learn and Play framework because it just makes it make sense. It, again, gets that therapeutic jargon out. They are using those visual supports very systematically to say, again, going back to the language, you know, you are rocking. The scattered action of rocking, sometimes our clients, our individuals are, you know, showing rocking as a sensory-seeking behavior. And we are looking at that as, as again, a clue. So we want them to be able to, we want their regulation needs to be met. And rocking is giving us a clue that they may need to move. So really systematically understanding using a picture of a scattered action, for example, rocking is in the first category that connects to the second category of, wait a minute, rocking, rocking is showing me you need to move. Hold on a minute. We already learned in phase one, a various amounts of you know sensory strategies or supports that are in that move category. So we've already got that. So then you can kind of fill in for the student and the client as they are going through the process. And it really kind of connects those dots between what behaviors, and we all talk about behaviors, you know, a lot of the time, what behaviors are, what they mean, and then what to do about them. And facilitating and empowering individuals with neurodiversity to um, feel as though they have control over that and, and can influence um, what, you know, what they're, the behaviors that they're engaging in is important. Yep, exactly. It's just showing that, that, you know, they need their autonomy too. And for them to be able to communicate to us as practitioners, and again, whatever their support systems are at that moment, being able to, you know, maybe the individual is nonverbal and is having a difficult time really communicating what their sensory regulation needs are. And we have found a lot of progress in our students' response um, to this framework using these visuals, because it's a way for them to communicate what their sensory regulation needs are. Absolutely. I, I love that. And I think a lot of emphasis and research in the past has been placed on those behaviors. Uh, but I love how this framework is taking it a step further and really identifying what those behaviors mean, what to do um, about those behaviors and empowering the client and their caregiver to to take those steps, which which leads us to phase three, generalization. What are some tips for how to determine what strategies are best suited to a given environment or instructor? Yeah, so individuals with sensory processing challenges benefit from generalizing concepts learned in therapy, including this knowledge of regulation, um, because we need them to be real life applicable. Um, the Ready to Learn and Play framework uses what we have determined as generalization guides. Again, these visual tools that we have developed to aid individuals as they expand their sensor regulation knowledge to other environments, such as classrooms, um, the gym, maybe home, community, et cetera, and with other supportive individuals, such as teachers, job coaches, family members. Once again, these hands-on learning tools were designed to assist the learners as they broaden their understanding of their own sensory processing needs. So 
as all strategies, techniques, and supports are not accessible in all contexts or with all caregivers, it's really crucial to the regulation of our participants that they are coached to recognize strategies across contexts and caregivers. The participants are coached to reflect on their learning from phase one for options that could support their regulation, regardless of whether they are in the classroom, in the community, or with an educator, or at home with a caregiver. So for example, if we think of a few pressure-based options that are accessible across multiple environments, so climbing can occur in a therapy gym or on a playground, wearing a weighted backpack is of course an option for school, but also can be used in the community, or manipulating putty or doing chair push-ups are great options for sitting at a desk. We take this a step further and explain to the participants that as coach to learn the strategies are not accessible with all support systems. So for example, it may be acceptable for a young child to seek out pressure-based input through a big tight squeeze from a trusted family member or bear hug. But however, this strategy might not be deemed acceptable for a young adult as they grow up to use in a work environment with a job coach. So our phase three are, is supported by these slide decks. And again, we have used these slide decks to break down the abstract nuances that kind of complicate that generalization of sensor regulation for concrete learners. So we use first person language in an easy to follow explanation paired with those visual aids to really delineate which strategies are more appropriate to use in which scenarios. And the learning theory applied here is that this elaborative rehearsal as we go over and we're building upon each phase aids in ingraining that sensor regulation concept into long-term memory. And that has shown that in neuroeducation research, it is easier for active retrieval of that sensory regulation knowledge. I love that so much. It's almost like uh, you're training clients to, to think like an OT, um, <laughs> to use these OT process strategies that uh, we learn in school and, and use in day-to-day practice to, to make those decisions for themselves. I love that. Phase four, application. What does collaboration look like to encourage upkeep or continued use of the ready-to-learn-and-play framework after intervention? So the final phase, phase four, is considered application, and this is ongoing. Um, It supports our, our individualized to the needs of the students to continue applying concepts to facilitate a sensory lifestyle Uh, while maximizing participation and performance. Um, So coaching and training uh, comprise a large portion of this application phase. And within the Ready to Learn and Play manual are training outlines to support the clinician through these critical steps. Another important aspect is to facilitate effective interpersonal collaboration. So knowledge um, sharing between professionals of sensory regulation concepts and the rubric evidence of this improved functional outcome for participants with the sensory regulation challenges. Using the the ready to learn and play framework is really kind of advocating for the value of the occupational therapy service provision. Um, So one of the primary goals here of ready to learn and play in general is to teach train and coach individuals and their support systems to be able to problem solve their regulation needs so that the value of that this framework stays with the family well beyond this OT's involvement. The application frame, uh, phase is really, again, like we were saying, ongoing in that 
we we want to make sure that all of those individuals who are in this this person's life are able to implement those same strategies the same way that we would and during an OT session. Absolutely. I, it, it sounds like there's so many supports and guides to, to help practitioners implement um, this framework and begin to use it. Um, I, I want to ask a, a kind of paper versus practice question is what I like to call it, that this framework sounds amazing. Thank you for outlining the steps, giving us an overview on paper. It looks wonderful, but I want to ask about its implementation into practice. Um, and you've conducted some pilot research with the framework. Can you describe um, how that study was organized and what results you observed in implementing this framework into actual practice? Sure. The pilot study evaluating the efficacy of Ready to Learn and Play framework on improving uh, occupational performance for students with autism on the ASD uh, spectrum um, was conducted as part of um, our partner, Dr. Janice Leinfuss, uh doctoral research at Gannon University. And it actually was published um, in early 2021. In this study, de-identified data representing students ages 3 to 21 with autism spectrum disorder um, was analyzed. So all the data sets received occupational therapy services as mandated by their IEP with the intervention group having the inclusion of the Ready to Learn and Play framework. From this study, the sensory profile, too, uh, was utilized to assess sensory processing challenges and the short child occupational pro- uh, profile, the scope, uh, was utilized to determine facilitators and those barriers to occupational performance as identified by their classroom teachers. So the pretest was determined through data analysis for age, sensory processing challenges, and occupational performance using you know these these different these different assessments. So then the pre and post test used the scope so that those scope rating totals were analyzed. And although both groups had positive change through occupational therapy and intervention, we, we observed change in their occupational performance after a year of OT programming. When comparing the two groups, the intervention group that received the Ready to Learn and Play framework had a greater positive change, indicating this statistically significant impact of the inclusion of the Ready to Learn and Play framework on occupational performance. So then following this pilot study, two expansion studies were completed. Um, The first expansion study followed uh, the similar procedures to the pilot study, but expanded to include learners with neurodiversity, including the students on the autism spectrum, but also various chromosomal disorders. And then the uh, second expansion study utilized similar procedures, but there was one very significant difference in that the OT intervention was delivered through teletherapy modalities, only with students being supported during their sessions by caregivers at home. Both of those, both control and the ready to learn and play intervention groups had positive change in their occupational performance after a year of OT programming in all three of the studies. However, when comparing the groups in each study, the intervention group had 
a greater positive change, indicating a st statistically significant impact of inclusion of that ready to learn and play framework. The expansion studies are currently being formally documented and will likely be submitted for publication in 2023 as well. Very exciting. So our listeners keep an eye out for, for these publications. I, I love that you've taken the time and put in the, the effort to conduct some of this research to support the application of the framework to practice. How would you recommend a listener begin to incorporate what we've discussed today into their own practice? So as we've been saying all along, behavior is communication. And our clients are constantly communicating with us through their words, their actions, their gestures, and ultimately their behaviors. So it's our job to support them by looking for these clues and breaking down this information to help them in their own regulation. We need to recognize the importance of giving away the quote unquote OT magic that we as practitioners have to support our clients by making this information more accessible and meaningful for themselves and for their caregivers and educators. And this is honestly the first critical step. I love that. What, what resources would you recommend to listeners who would like to learn more um, about this framework? Yes. Well, we would encourage all listeners to review the Ready to Learn and Play website, which is readytolearnandplay.com. And that has a ton of information available specific to the framework, as well as where listeners can find us presenting next. Um, information about publications, past trainings, and opportunities for virtual trainings are also available there. Listeners are, of course, welcome to email us directly, and our email address is readytolearnandplayllc at gmail.com with any questions they may have. Thank you so much. I'll be sure to provide a link to these resources in our episode description as well. We're coming now to the end of the interview. Thank you both again so much for your time. I just have two more questions now. First being, where can listeners find more information and research related to the Ready to Learn and Play framework? Um, in addition to the research and training opportunities, listeners can read feedback from OTs, other interprofessional team members, and from individuals who have actually utilized the framework. Um, other resources such as slide decks, uh, what we call me stories, which are stories to further make the content of the framework more meaningful for clients. And links to games are all available on a Boom Learning site um, and can be you know, accessed and downloaded there. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We've made it now to the golden nugget segment. <laughs> and I ask you each for a golden nugget. Um, if you could tell practitioners to do just one thing, what would it be? Okay, Matt. So as OTs, we are taught to use our skilled observation abilities to inform our practice. Neurodiverse individuals communicate through their actions and often provide those clues on how we can support their regulation needs. So our advice to practitioners is to reframe that thinking from, quote, providing therapy and really embrace the process of giving away our magic to empower our clients and their families with their own self-regulation. In addition, we consider it very important, and this was our first realization, was that the kids that we were working with were receiving therapy. Um, by getting individuals with neurodiversity and more engaged in the therapeutic process, we're going to empower them to have an increased ability to regulate themselves. Um, so it's just an important 
an important theme throughout this framework. Absolutely. I love that so much. Those are powerful nuggets to end on. Uh, you've shared so many nuggets throughout the show. Um, I want to thank you both for your, for your time. Um, and it's been a pleasure to, to speak with you um, and really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Matt. We appreciate your time as well. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.